Welcome to the Invest Like a Boss podcast. I'm Sam Marks. And I'm Johnny FD. We're self-made entrepreneurs who invest our own money and use modern technology to invest like a boss. Join us each week for exclusive interviews with our network of modern investors, business owners, and multimillionaires to discover new ways to invest our hard-earned cash. Hey guys, and welcome to episode 36 of the Invest Like a Boss podcast. I'm Johnny FD, and I'm here with Sam Marks. Hey guys, welcome back. And Johnny, congratulations. This is our first episode of 2017. I'm pumped to be back on the airways with you. I'm definitely excited. And I'm very, very excited for this week's guest, Dr. Daniel Crosby. Yeah. So this kind of marks our breakthrough into the academics. I'm not sure if Dr. Daniel Crosby would consider himself an academic, but anytime I see the PhD behind a name, I always think academics, but he's obviously a private sector guy and had a lot of success. And This is a really interesting episode because I think psychology in regards to investing is probably the most important thing that any of us can understand with regards to investing because that's where all the losses are incurred, right? Yeah, I I definitely agree. And it's one of those things where even if you had all the information in the world, if you didn't have the right mindset behind it or you panic when things go down, that is when the losses actually happen. So I think that is why it's so important to to talk to guys like Dr. Daniel and kind of dive in deep on how to prevent that and what it happens in the first place. Yeah, and I really love these guests that have written books because they have some really specific material that they've mastered that they can bring to the table to discuss. So I'm really pumped. And everybody out there, stay tuned to after the episode because I have a little bit of a secret that I'm going to reveal. Ooh, definitely excited about that. Uh, I don't even know what it is yet, so I think that'll be fun. Uh, If you guys aren't familiar with Daniel Crosby's uh, books or his videos, don't worry. We'll have a link to everything in the show notes. Just go to investlikeaboss.com and look for episode 36. And uh, if you guys do buy you know, his book off of Amazon, please use our link because uh, this is how we support the show. And instead of having annoying commercial breaks, just anytime one of our guests has a book or they mention something, if uh, we'll have in a link to it in our show notes, which gives us credit for referring you. So if you're going to buy it anyways go ahead and just take that extra step and get it through our site. So guys, without further ado, let's see what Dr. Daniel Crosby has to say. Guys, welcome back. Today we're joined with Dr. Daniel Crosby. Dan, thanks for joining us, man. My pleasure. Great to be here. Great to be here. After the holidays, this is our first episode post-2017 or uh, post-2016 into 2017. And you are the New York best-selling author of the book, the Laws of Wealth, Psychology, and the Secret to Investing Success. So we're really excited to dive into that and get your perspective and specifically on your 10 commandments of investing behavior. Before we dive into that, I was just hoping we could get a little bit of background on you, where you live, where'd you get your doctorate, what you're doing today. Yeah, so I grew, grew up in Alabama, so always like to shout out Alabama, but uh, live in Atlanta, Georgia now. Uh, the sort of the capital of the South, if you will, um, got my got my schooling done at Brigham Young University in Utah, as well as uh, Emory University mm. uh, here in Atlanta. And uh, yeah, got got three kids, spent Christmas playing a lot of Mario Kart. And uh, <laughs> who doesn't want to do that? <laughs> oh, my gosh, it's great. So, yeah, uh, yeah, just uh, th- three kids love love living in the love living in the South and uh, big St. Louis Cardinals baseball fan. What nice. else? And what were you playing Mario Kart on? What what uh, doc? PS3 uh, we, or? Wii U. Oh, it's the best. Oh, man. Yeah. Missed those days. Got to bring it back. And you said you did. Uh, you went to school at BYU. 
I went to BYU. Yep. The the BYU. That's good the school. BYU. Is that in Atlanta or is that somewhere else? BYU is in Provo, Utah. Okay, cool. Nice, nice place. So I took a look at the video that you, I look like you're up in Canada and it was, it was on your book and you're speaking to a group of Canadians, which I'm, I'm guessing was why you're in Canada. Uh, but it looked like they were a group of financial advisors you were speaking to, not, not investors themselves. Is that correct? That's right. That's probably my most common audience is, is financial advisors. That was really cool. I love the message and I feel like that's, it's so transparent to where we are today. And a key point of this podcast is trying to figure out instead of having to put your full faith in advisors, trying to learn the steps either so that you can work with an advisor more effectively or that you can take a lot of this stuff in, into the matter of your own hands. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the, you know, it's it's really all about behavior. And I think that's the the message of both your podcast and, and the book mm-hmm. uh, is just trying to empower investors. I mean, that's that's why I wrote the book. Uh, is to empower investors to to make better decisions about who to work with uh, and, and what sort of questions to ask and things of that nature. I love it. So I have a lot of questions just about the actual video, and I assume that a lot of those questions will go in line with your book. But if you could take us through just, you already mentioned what kind of inspired you to write the book, but if you can kind of take us through the different sections of the book, and then I'm really keen to dive into your Ten Commandments. Yeah, so there, there's really two parts to the book. Uh, the first part of the book is the Ten Commandments, which I think we'll spend the bulk of the time on today. This, the second part of the book is uh, how do we apply the learnings of social science? I'm a psychologist by education, mm-hmm. so how do we take the you know the 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 science of psychology, the science of social psychology, and apply that to improve the way that we manage money, uh, the way that we construct portfolios? Because uh, it, it's actually quite bad in a lot of respects. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot uh, maybe counterintuitively that psychology can teach us about how to do those things. Very interesting. And the Ten Commandments of Intelligent Investing, is that written for investors to understand, to be able to to work more effectively in finance? Yeah, it really is written for for end investors. But, you know, I find financial advisors gravitating to it quite a bit, both to educate their clients uh, and because uh, <laughs> I think even professionals need to revisit yeah. the basics. And I mean, frankly, the bar to become a financial advisor is quite low. Right. Um, so it's 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 written for everyone. I think it's important information for everyone. It's interesting. There's a lot of debate going on on what's the future hold for financial advisors. And I fall into the camp of as long as capitalism survives and as long as people have money and as long as there's people on earth and you have those things, you're always going to have some type of need for financial advisory. The game might change, but people always need help and more literature and, and more knowledge on on better ways to manage and grow the, grow their money, right? Yeah. So let's dive into that a little bit later. But without further ado, let's kick it off with your 10 commandments. Yeah. So the the first of the 10 commandments is you control what matters most. Mm -hmm. And this is, again, trying to empower investors from the very outset. Um, I actually just walked in the door from a luncheon where uh, you know, a PhD level economist was giving her projection for the coming years and talking about, you know, will, will India, uh, you know, outpace China in the coming year and what will Donald Trump mean for financial mm-hmm. markets? 
And it's really just kind of silly, frankly, because a better predictor of whether you reach the finish line is just boring blocking and tackling stuff like maintaining a long term perspective, setting aside money every month, um, you know, being well diversified, diversifying across asset classes, just boring blocking and tackling Mm -hmm. is a far better predictor uh, than all the macro philosophizing that I think takes up so much of people's time and worry. So the the first chapter is, again, just trying to help people to understand that, look, you really are in the driver's seat more than you realize, uh, and your behavior is the best predictor of whether or not you get to where you need to go. And by saying your behavior, that's, does that mean more not being erratic and making emotional decisions? Yeah, that's that's a big piece of it. Mm -hmm. Just just doing the things that are often, you know, that are well known, but seldom done, just the same way that. Uh, you know, if you look at diet and exercise, it's not like we don't know what we're supposed to be doing. It's just sort of hard to implement. Mm-hmm. So doing those basic things, you know, some of which I just mentioned, doing those basic things, those basic behaviors of saving, diversifying, maintaining a long-term perspective, much better predictor than, uh, you know, what interest rates are going to do, what Janet Yellen's going to do, what Donald Trump's going to do. Makes a lot of sense. Okay, so number two, you cannot do this alone. Give us a little bit of background on that one. Yeah, so to your point earlier, this this is the section where I talk about how to choose a financial advisor. I talk about the benefits of working with a financial advisor. Um, you know, the, the research is pretty unequivocal that people that work with a financial advisor do better than those who do not. There's about four different studies I quote uh, in the book. And That's people really say, interesting. I, I had no idea that was true. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting because it's it's for an odd reason. You know, mm-hmm. when when you ask people, hey, okay, why why do people, uh, you know, why do people who work with an advisor do better? I think most people would say, well, the advisor's a, a great stock picker. Um, he's putting them where they need to be, and that's simply not the case. Uh, the the fact is that uh, you know financial professionals don't show much of an increase over you know just a, a man off the street mm-hmm. in terms of their ability to select securities. And yet people that work with a financial advisor tend to do about 3% better per year, which is dramatic over an investment lifetime. And it's just because, back to that first point, they keep you in your seat. You know, they keep you from selling everything in 2008, mm-hmm. 2009. They keep you, you know, they crack the whip to get you saving 15, 20% of your income. They just, uh, they're sort of like, uh, you know, again, uh, going back to our gym analogy, it's the, it's the new year. So they're just sort of that personal trainer for your finances. And so, uh, you know, I kind of make the case in there, first of all, um, you know, this is how you select a good financial advisor because they're certainly not all created equal. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second point is use them for what they're good at, not as some sort of mini hedge fund manager, but as a, as a behavioral coach and as someone who keeps you on a good path. So in that video, and I assume this goes along with the book, you had mentioned that, correct me if I'm wrong, I'll probably fudge the numbers a little bit, but it was somewhere along the lines of 80 per, or 87% of financial advisors believe that their number one value add to clients is behavior or controls, but only it was low single digits. I want to say it was like 3% of clients believed that their value, the, the number one value add of their advisor was the same thing. So is that true or is, did I misquote that? I think it was 84 and six, but yeah, you were right okay, there. Perfect. Yeah. So what does that, like, what does that mean? It means that 
financial advisors know where their value add is, which are the things that you're talking about, the behavioral controls. But clients feel that where financial advisors are adding the most value is by being stock pickers or or some type of wealth, like you know, having some type of inside track to wealth that they wouldn't normally have. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, I mean, you look at sort of the phases and, and frankly, that's that's uh, my my industry's fault. You know, mm-hmm. that's that's Wall Street's fault. You know, if you look at the sort of the evolution of the <clears throat> financial advice industry, it started out, you know, years ago that we were just the gatekeepers like you couldn't you know, you couldn't make a transaction without going to a professional. Well, that went away long ago. And so next was, well, OK, you can go to E-Trade and that's fine. But they don't know the secret sauce. You know, mm-hmm. they don't know the the mysteries of the kingdom. And that's right. what we're going to tell you. Um, well, and now research is saying that that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what we're left with is sort of like, what what are they good at? And what the research says that financial professionals are good at is is keeping you on course, keeping you on track, um, even if they're maybe not great. Uh, at, at maybe if there is no secret sauce or maybe the secret sauce is just keeping you doing those handful of boring behavioral things that you know should be you should be doing, mm-hmm. uh, but you're hardwired not to do. And when you say so for point number two, just to, to revert to the main line, you cannot do this alone. Do you feel that that mostly comes down to, again, behavioral controls, just having someone there to lean on and, and tell you the long term perspective is OK and kind of you know, stay the course? Or do you think that also entails a lot of just simple know-how, like picking different funds and, and diversifying? Well, there, there is, um, there is a know-how element to it. I mean, there's certainly, that's a piece of it, Mm -hmm. but if people are at all interested, I mean, you could spend, uh, you know, you could spend a long weekend reading books and articles on asset allocation and cheap investing and come away with a pretty darn good idea of what you ought to be doing. Mm -hmm. Some people don't even have that sort of baseline interest to to do that. They just don't care. They're that turned off by it. But so yeah, there's there's a baseline of knowing what to do. Uh, but I think the value add over, uh, you know, over someone who's doing it themselves or someone who's going with a robo advisor is is that behavioral management piece for sure. Yeah, and like we've figured out through the last 35 episodes of this podcast, it's a lot of information to take in and digest. Even when you're, even when you're studying it next to full time, it's uh, it's a lot to take in, but I think everyone should get a basis for core principles of diversification, understanding different terminology. So a lot of things that you're talking about that you can, you can work more effectively if you do use an advisor. Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, I think the the world is moving in that direction. You know, patient advocacy. When when you go to a doctor now, you just you want to be informed about your symptoms and mm-hmm. know what to advocate for. And I think the same thing is is true of of financial advice. And I don't want to go too far into your book because I want to leave a lot of of the juicy details for the listeners to read. But what are one or two different ways that someone can get started when looking for a good financial advisor just to make sure that they they do some simple vetting? Yeah, well, one of the easiest things to look for is to to ask if that person is a fiduciary. And mm-hmm. that's sort of a technical term, but that, that means that they have to act with your uh, best interest in mind. They have a legal, uh, you know, a legal requirement that they act with your best 
best interests in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas historically, we've operated as an industry from what's called a suitability standpoint, which means it just has to be sort of good enough, um, <laughs> but that they could put you in something that maybe paid them sort of a, an extra commission or a kickback. Um, and, and so that's uh, people don't understand how loosely regulated the industry has been uh, to date. There have been some good legislation recently. But yeah, you want to make sure you're working with someone who is a fiduciary. Uh, you also want to ask them directly, how do you get paid? Mm-hmm. I saw something recently that less than 20% of people know what they pay their financial advisor. Um, and I mean, if you have any kind of wealth, it, it's a it's a big number. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's probably second only to maybe your mortgage or something. Um, and so, uh, you know, ask them how you can get paid. And then sort of an add on to that is, uh, can you negotiate your fees? Because a lot of people uh, will let you negotiate your fee. Uh, if you have a larger account size, they'll let you negotiate down. And most people just don't know how to ask or they think that it's indelicate or, you know, they don't want to talk about it. Uh, but I'd want to know and make sure those people are getting paid uh, for putting your best interest first and make sure they're getting paid uh, not on a, on a commission basis or anything like that, but just make sure uh, they're getting paid for the right reasons. Great advice. I heard someone once say that, let's say you had a million dollar account and you're paying the advisor 1.5% and then they're maybe making some commissions on additional trades or funds that they put you in. So let's just say that they're making $20,000 off a, that'd be 2% off a $1 million account. Now, most of the time that's just taken straight out of the account every quarter or something without, without you actually really seeing it, you know? Right. But someone said, imagine taking a suitcase full of $20,000 to your advisor every January 1st and dropping it off. You would think a lot more carefully about the service that they're providing you versus if it was just drawn from your account kind of without <laughs> with under your nose without you seeing it, right? Yeah. Well, and, and you know, the, the thing that's tricky is the numbers sound small. You know, mm-hmm. one and a half one and a half percent sounds like a small number. It's not a small number. Um, and, you know, I think in this day and age, anyone that's charging over one percent should sort of make you stop and think for a mm-hmm. minute uh, for sure. Because I, I think one percent and under is going and especially for a million dollar account, um, you could find someone to do it, uh, do a nice job for, for well under that. Yeah. And the 1% is, you know, it's easy to pitch when, or even one and a half percent, it's easy to pitch when they compare it historically to returns. And I think when I I was using advisor until about a year ago, and I'd been using one probably for the 10 years before that. And it was always the same. Whenever the conversation came up, I was like, well, we're going to charge you one, 1.25%. But historically we've been making eight and a half percent. So it's nothing. And so it's, it's a really easy pitch. And for, for the layman who's not sure, you know, how, how these numbers actually drill down, it just seems like it's an easy go. So let's go into number three. Your number three is trouble is opportunity is the third commandment. Yeah. Trouble is opportunity. This is again, one of those things that everyone knows and no one does. Um, you know, everyone knows that you're supposed to buy low and sell high. I sat, <laughs> I sat by someone on an airplane recently and they're like, Oh, what do you do? And I told them and they're like, Oh, so you got a, you got a PhD. So you could tell people to buy low and sell high. But um, this is, this is one <laughs> of those things where I think you need to build in um, mechanisms for taking advantage of bad times. Yeah. I mean, you need to have it sort of baked into your process that, yeah, I'm going to keep some cash on the side. And anytime there's a 20% drawdown or a 10%, whatever the number is, I'm going to get extra aggressive. 
And you have to sort of almost cultivate a, a perverse mindset that that revels in pain. Uh, I know. And it's nothing we do easily, which is why I talk throughout the book about making everything rules based. So again, with my with my own investing, I just automate the process of getting more conservative when markets are frothy uh, and getting more aggressive when when times are tough, because mm-hmm. everybody thinks they're going to do the right thing in the moment. And basically, no one does. So just automating the process by which you define trouble and take advantage of it. I think that this has got to be the one that's the most true and one that everybody knows of. And like you said, it's the one that's the most difficult to do. And I remember in the crash of 08, I had a little bit of money in the market, but me and and everybody else, granted, we we're pretty young at that time. You know, we thought the world was ending. We had no idea because we had no experience of markets. You know, if we'd been around for a hundred years, you could probably look at the markets and say, this is just another hiccup. Maybe it takes a few years to recover, but it's just going to be another hiccup. But when that's your first big crash that you, that you live through. And now of course, in hindsight, you're like, well, you know, who should have thrown everything money in (laughs) and my mother's into it. Right. Uh, but yeah, it's extremely difficult. So I'm, I'm very interested to know how you automate and mechanize it for your own investing. So, well, I mean, this is, Tough, tough to do on your own, maybe. But you know, one of the things that I've done is I've looked back at uh, at valuations over the last fifty, you know, post World War II. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I've built is a way to, you know, to talk about how cheap or how expensive the market is at any given time. And so I just automate the process then of saying, look, when the market's, you know, under the twenty fifth percentile, you go nuts. And when the market's, um, you know, in, in that top quartile, you you start to take some off the table. Uh, but most people don't, you know, you don't have an intuitive sense of that. Um, so you either work with someone who can do that or, you know, even on a very basic level, just say, look, here are some stocks that I like, you know, whatever, Disney, Nike, whatever, mm-hmm. or, or whether it's an S&P uh, index fund. And you say, look, I, I want to get in, but things are a little expensive right now. Um, when we hit 20% down, no matter what, I'm making the call. Um, it can be that easy as having a buy list if you don't want to go, <clears throat> you know, full blown crazy yeah. re- research nerd like I did. Um, yeah, it could be that easy, but you really have to cultivate that contrarian mindset. And again, I think that's where, uh, you know, working with someone comes in handy because most people are going to have that buy list sitting on the desk and they're going to go, well, you know, when, when the market drops 20%, the narrative is always so damn scary. Yeah. Uh, that that it always feels like the end of the world. So I really like what you did and I was looking at I was looking at market prices back before the most recent upswing when Dow was at about 185 and I was trying to figure out historically how expensive stocks were and I couldn't really find that great of concise information but I was essentially trying to to look at what it seems like you're looking at all the time. So is that is that a service that you're ever going to make available or data that you'd make available, what you do for your own investing, uh, you know, for other people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm happy, I'm happy to make that available. And, uh, you know, the, the thing that's tricky is, uh, first of all, there's, there's people with, with perverse incentives. I mean, there's people, uh, wall street always wants you to be bullish. I mean, it's for a lot of people, salespeople, Mm -hmm. it's always a good time to be invested. (laughs) And so, (laughs) you know, they'll use whatever metric sort of conforms to their, uh, the, the narrative they're trying to push. And one of the, the sneaky things that I hate is that people will use what's called forward, like expected returns, right? Mm-hmm. For, forward price to earning ratios. Got so it. they'll 
they'll use a, a forward price to earnings ratio is nothing more than a forecast price to earnings ratio. So they say, I mean, they might say, well, yeah, uh, the current price to earnings ratio of the market is whatever, 20. So that looks expensive, but forward uh, returns have it at 15, which is more in line. <laughs> you know, so all they're saying is, yeah, but we think we think there's going to be a brighter tomorrow. Well, of course you do. Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the things that I, I, I never do is use forecast returns. I always use, you know, today's data. Um, and I look at uh, a handful of different metrics, so I'm not cherry picking them, mm-hmm. and and then I combine those into one uh, one average. But I'll tell you, I mean, I'll tell you right now, it's super super expensive. I mean, yeah. that that much I could tell you. So right right now, the markets are super expensive. Super expensive. Oh man, I'm always looking for a good buy opportunity, except when the markets are down twenty percent, and then I want to sell. <laughs> well. I tell you, emerging emerging markets are cheap, and yeah. developed Europe is uh, average. Mm-hmm. So it's not, you know, that's why you diversify. America, right. America's expensive. Makes sense. Okay, number four. If you're excited, it's a bad idea. Yeah. So in in this one, I talk about, um, you know, uh, just about once a week, I get someone calling me excited about, you know, some story stock mm-hmm. or something they heard about from a friend or, you know, Tesla or whatever sort of brand they're in love with. And that's why I wrote this chapter. I mean, good investing is painfully boring. I mean, it's just it's it's painfully boring and you shouldn't really be having any fun with it. Uh, until sort of all your needs are met, you know, until mm-hmm. you've sort of got your uh, your, your retirement fully funded. Uh, only at that point could you maybe take 5% of your money and have a little fun with it. Um, I, I talk in the book uh, about a study done at Harvard that shows that the, the neuronal patterns, sort of the brain waves uh, of people uh, anticipating a hit of crack cocaine and people day trading are very similar. So, um <laughs> You know, it can be very enticing to do these, you know, trade individual stocks and do these different things. But uh, ultimately, it's pretty dumb. Makes a lot of sense. And for you, where you're at right now, are you investing anything in kind of your exciting have fun stock selections? Or are you totally out of that stuff? Man, I got three kids. I'm not doing a single fun thing. I got, <laughs> I got just, I got to head down, be boring, and do do what I uh, do what I ought to do. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, I still, you mentioned Tesla. I own Tesla. I'm very, I'm hoping. I've ho- I've held it for about three years. I haven't made a dollar on it yet. It goes on wild rides. But for me, I don't have that much money in it. It's it's just one of those exciting stories to be part of. But since we've been diving into investing since the last year. Johnny, my co-host, and I have gotten totally out of stock selection. Uh, that was something that we did a lot, you know, in college and post-college, and of course took it on the chin, like most people. So I think that is a, a very good point for everybody to fall down on. Number four is if you're excited, it's a bad idea, and that is probably a good narrative for a lot of things in life as well. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So number five, tell us about number five. Yeah, number five is you are not special. Um, the first, I am a bit of a killjoy, I guess. My first, the first TED TEDx talk I did was called "You're Not That Great," and mm-hmm. I, I just think this is an important message for people to understand. Um, people think, yeah, but it won't happen to me about investing. You know, they might understand. I, you know, perfect example had someone come up to me after a recent uh, <clears throat> a recent presentation I gave. And he said, hey, doc, you know, I got half of my money and it was a couple million dollars. I got half of my money 
in Apple stock, what do you think? Do you think Apple's a good stock? And I said, you know, my man, uh, irrespective of my opinion of Apple, it's, it's stupid. Like, because, you know, you're not different. Um, nobody should have 50% of their money in any one stock. And you know, that's a bad idea. And he said, yeah, but you know, I, I work in the tech industry and this and that. Uh, and everyone's always got a reason why they're different or they're special or they have inside knowledge. And one of the, one of the, the hallmarks of being a behavioral investor, uh, sort of a psychologically informed investor, is to know that all the bad crap that can happen to anyone else can happen to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and owning that you're no different and the rules apply to you just as much as they apply to anyone else. I think this also goes in line with number, the fourth commandment which is if you're excited, it's a bad idea in talking about stock picking. And a lot of people think they have some inside knowledge of a stock or that they're outsmarting the people standing to the left or right of them. And in almost all cases, historically, you're going to be proven wrong. Yeah, there's uh, research that recently came out of Taiwan that showed that one in 360 uh, Taiwanese day traders, you know, people who are selecting individual securities, one in 360 of them showed skill. I mean, it's it's vanishingly small, the, the number of people that are good at this. Wow, that's an, that's an incredible stat. That's, mm-hmm. It's actually quite scary, but we'll, we'll stay away from investing in Taiwanese uh, fund managers. <laughs> okay, number six, your life is the best benchmark. Yeah, here's where I talk about, you know, sort of benchmarking to the things that matter to you. Most people benchmark to the S&P, you know, they want to know how, how did I do relative to the Dow or the S&P or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is where I talk about, look, you know, you don't, you, you have a risk tolerance that's going to be, you know, lower or higher, probably much lower um, than the S&P 500. And you need to benchmark to the life that you want to live, right? You need to benchmark to the returns you need to live the life that you want to live. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's sensible advice on its face, but there's also some psychological power to it. You know, I talk about a study in the book uh, where where people who uh, looked at a picture of their kids before they made any big financial decision set aside almost 300% more money uh, than than people in in the control group. And so the very act of considering your life, what matters to you, the legacy that you want to leave, the kind of person you want to be, um, is actually a, a powerful, has sort of a powerful chastening effect on the sort of decisions that you make. So it's, uh, that's the chapter where I encourage people to, to have a well-defined vision for the life they want to live and to invest accordingly. So just for the layman out there, that would mean, you know, if you're, if you're 18, or just give some real world perspectives. If you're 18, you're starting off, you want to be on the fast track, you can accept some risk. You're going to be investing much more aggressively than someone who's 60. They have enough money to retire and live off of their the rest of their life if they don't screw it up. Their benchmark probably isn't going to be the S&P 500, right? Yeah. Well, and I mean, you know, even even someone like me, I've been a good save, you know, been a good saver forever. I've had a successful career. I've set aside a good amount of money. Like I, do, I don't need to shoot the lights out. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I just, I just don't need to. If you've got a long time, the best portfolio is the one where you can handle the ride. Mm-hmm. And most people uh, set it up to shoot the lights out and not, uh, not with an eye to being able to handle the ride. 
you know, in the book, I, I talk probably my favorite study in the whole book. We'll just give the whole book away. So no, no <laughs> there's a lot of great parts of it. I want, I'm hoping you, you tip up. So, no. so the, the one, my favorite study in the whole book talks about the best mutual fund of the early aughts. So from 2000 to 2010, this focus fund uh, did 18% a year, which is bonkers. That's great. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the next best fund uh, was like three, 3% behind it. And the average investor in that best fund lost 11% because they got, they got in and out at all the wrong times. Every time the fund ran up, people would pile in. Every mm-hmm. time it went down, they would jump out. And so people have to understand that, again, the best, the best thing you can do is get on a ride that you can ride all the way to the end, and that'll get you to the life you want to live. I think it's especially true today because one of the biggest issues that I've personally experienced with investing uh, in stocks and bonds and et cetera, is just the ease of access of trading now. So between my Vanguard account, my Wealthfront account, my, my, uh, five other different accounts that I have online, I can get in and out with a push of a button, log in, make a trade, I'm done. So you see all these red lights flashing on the TV screen, or you get bad news over the phone. Uh, there's a geopolitical event somewhere. It's so easy to let emotion take control, which I, I can only imagine, you know, 20 years ago before the internet and computers, it was much more difficult to make trades. And therefore, you know, you, people could act on their emotions a little bit less. But now, especially with millennials getting in and investing, they're so used to being on the computer all day and, uh, and making thousands of mouse clicks a day. It's just so easy to get in and out and you know, the majority of people, they're going to make the decision to get out at the wrong time, right? Well, yeah. And, you know, it's it's one of those tricky things because we think things like liquidity and transparency, they, they are on paper good things for our money, right? I mean, mm-hmm. we, we want access. Uh, and yet the research shows that the more often you check your account, the worse you tend to do. And that there's an inverse relationship between how much financial news you watch and how, how well you do. Mm-hmm. So, people who are watching CNBC all day are actually doing worse than people who are just doing nothing. And so, you know, we live in a day and age when iPhones come preloaded with the stocks app and we can check it, you know, a hundred times a day if we want. Uh, and, and the fact is if you're checking it a hundred times a day, it's quite scary. I mean, the market's down about 42% of the time. Jeez. Um, and losses, losses uh, are stickier in our memories than gains are. You know, we have a better mm-hmm. memory for bad stuff than we do good stuff. And so if, you know, the market's down over 40% of the time, it feels like 80% of the time. So if you're looking all the time, it's really scary. So, um, you know, I encourage my clients to kind of uh, self-hamper their access to these things. And it's, it's hard to do. So did we did we leave off with number seven? We're talking about forecasting is for weathermen. Yeah. So we haven't talked about number seven yet. Mm-hmm. There's a, a, a talk a, a lot in there. You know, I just got back from this forecasting lunch, uh, and and basically I share all, a lot of the research on forecasting in there, and says, look, there's there's a very real reason why our brains like this. You know, our brains consume about twenty five to thirty percent of all the all the glucose, all the energy that our body takes in in a given day. Mm. They're very hungry, very hungriest organ uh, in your body. 
So we're always looking for ways to sort of think less, sadly. <laughs> and one, one of the ways that we can do this is by listening to quote unquote expert forecasts. And we yeah. say, okay, well, I can kind of put my brain on cruise control because, you know, Jim Cramer says this is what's going to happen. Uh, but in that chapter, I pretty decisively, I think, sort of, uh, sort of erode people's confidence in forecasting and say, look, it's, uh, it's about as good as a coin flip. Uh, and, and sometimes is actually much worse. And actually, there's some reasons why forecasts are bad that are sort of baked into the way that people get compensated and the way that products mm -hmm. get sold. Um, so talk, talk. I think, uh, about 80,000 forecasts that were looked at uh, by a guy named David Dreeman. He found that one time in 170 uh, were the forecasts within 5% of the eventual, you know, the eventual outcome. I mean, it's just... It, again, like nobody can do it. Um, there's a market for it because it, it sort of soothes our minds, uh, but it's actually a horrible way to invest. That's incredible. And someone like Kramer, who I guess is kind of the the poster boy of forecasting and, and financial news, uh, it's at least somebody that when I was in college or post-college, I would come home and, you know, it was, it was always on TV at my with my dad and my friends, parents, and they would be watching and say, it's incredible. You know, in today's age, you can get this type of financial information fed to you. And there's no other time in the world when we have this good of forecasting in front of our faces. Do you think someone like Kramer and the million other people on the news that are trying to make financial forecasts for the markets, do you think that they're just totally out of tune? Or do you believe that they're smart, but because so many other people are in line with their thinking, it the market can't follow that path because too many people are then on that path. Oh yeah. So by, <clears throat> by the very act of them predicting it, it sort of thwarts their prediction, that mm -hmm. sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I, I wish they were that good. I think, I think the, the more, uh, more realistic response is, um, there's a, there's a psychological demand for these things. And so there will always be people who want to profit from that and want to scratch that itch. You know, mm -hmm. there's a guy, uh, there's a guy, I'm not going to, selling any books for him but there's a guy that uh you know came out this week with a with a new book that's you know gloom and doom for you know that this is why the market's going to drop 50 percent in the next year mm -hmm. and i'm you know i'm sure it's selling like crazy because people love that stuff it gives them a sense of prescience but you know let's not forget that jim kramer predicted that bear stearns was going to go to the moon the day mm -hmm. before they went bankrupt so let's not forget that one of the best uh best-selling books of all time came out about uh, 17 years ago and it was called Dow 36,000. And yeah. I mean, we, we haven't hit 20,000 yet, mm -hmm. you know, 17 years on. So uh, these things are big money makers and they scratch a psychological itch, but there's, there's frankly nothing to it. And if every, if every Wall Street analyst in the world walked into the ocean tomorrow, uh, investors would be no worse for it. Makes sense. So in closing for the seventh commandment, forecasting is for weatherman. You're basically preaching just don't pay attention to forecasts, stick to the fundamentals, stick to your game plan, stick to your benchmark and go with it. Well, yeah. And I mean, diversification is sort of this humility in practice, because I mean, if you own uh, international stocks and domestic stocks and real estate and fixed income and every other thing, you're sort of saying you're, you're kind of throwing your hands up and going, look, I, you know, I don't know what I, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, and this this gets to the ninth command. We can just cover that one right now. Mm -hmm. The ninth commandment is diversification means always having to say you're sorry. So I mean, you know, diversifying that way says, look, I have no 
bring an idea of what's going to happen in the future, <laughs> but I'm going to be positioned to take advantage of whatever does well. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the flip side of that, it means always having to say you're sorry. Something's always going to be underperforming. Um, but if you look at your portfolio, I mean, this is a great way to, to, to see how well diversified you are. If you look at your portfolio and everything is up, like you're not doing it right. Yeah. So that's a good point. So Johnny has a Vanguard account. I have a Vanguard account and we kind of compare our, our accounts pretty often. And he's got basically two funds in his account. He's very bullish. He's got, I think the S&P 500 uh, or VTI, maybe it's VTI, which is total stock market index. And then mm-hmm. he's got small cap. Uh, I think it's a Russell 2000 small cap. And me, I have probably 15 funds and Johnny's account killed mine this year, which was, I was, I was quite upset. Right. Uh, and I had big losers in healthcare, uh, foreign, small, cap, uh, small cap, anything foreign, foreign bonds. It was all, they're all these losers. And immediately I'm like, you know what, why didn't, why didn't I just follow Johnny's path? Why didn't I just t- pick two funds? Right. But I have to imagine that that will all balance out over the course of three, four, five years. Some of those funds that I had that were losers will come roaring back. And some of the, you know, some of the ones that I had winners that mimic what Johnny has, those will be losers in the years ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's, that gets us to the eighth commandment that excess is never permanent. And John, Johnny, your day is coming. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Don't don't worry, Johnny. I'll buy lunch that day. (laughs) Johnny, your day is coming. I mean, you know, it's been, uh, if you've had the S and P 500 for the last eight years, you have looked like a genius. I mean, there's nothing in the world that's beat it. Um, but you know, I talk in that chapter in chapter eight, I say, you know, the only truism that the only thing that's always true about the market is that this too shall pass. Mm. You know, uh, there's, there's great studies that show the market exhibits short term momentum, but longer term, like medium term mean reversion. So to sort of describe that, it means, you know, what's done well for the past six months or a year tends to do well for like the next six months or a year. Mm-hmm. But what's done well for the last five years uh, tends to do uh, poorly for the subsequent five years. So, I mean, uh, as well as the S&P 500 has done for the last eight years, it is basically an article of faith that it will not do well for the next eight years. Wow. Um, now, look, that I don't know if that happens tomorrow or two years from now, but I would I would if we meet back here in eight years, I would I could say with a lot of confidence that the S&P won't have been, uh, you know, won't have been fantastic. I could say that with a high degree of confidence. Very cool. And the truism, this too shall pass. That works on both sides in, you know, bad times and good times. I actually knew a girl in college that tattooed it on on her rib cage. Uh, but cause she was going through a hard time and I'm like, well, I wonder if that's also true for good times too. So maybe it's just a good thing to always, to always be in balance and always know that things, you know, things kind of always come back to the center. Well, that's exactly the point that I try and make in that chapter because I say, look, you know, what are the two biggest emotions that get thrown out as the ones that blow up investors, you know, fear and greed. So if you look at a, a 2008, 2009, you tell yourself, look, this too shall pass. Mm-hmm. And if you're and if you're and if you're Johnny and you're uh, riding high on eight years of outperformance and, you know, beating every hedge fund manager in the world, mm-hmm. 
you have to take a step back and say, you know, this, this shall pass as well. You have to take a step back and say, number five, you are not special. You are not special. That's right. <laughs> or number four, if you're excited, it's a bad idea. Right, right, right. right. Oh, maybe we should tattoo the Ten Commandments on our forearms so uh, we, can, we can review every day. <laughs> if someone does that, uh, you will have my undying respect. Yes. Like, okay. Uh, boss listeners, if, if you want to do that and send in a photo, you get a lifetime of free books from <laughs> Dr. Daniel Crosby. All right. So let's go into the last one, the 10th commandment, which is risk is not a squiggly line. Yeah. So, you know, academics uh, in, in finance uh, directly tie risk to volatility. So they say, you know, the risk of an asset is equivalent to its up and down, right? How volatile the ride is. Uh, and in here, I try and talk about more fundamental ways to think about risk. You know, of course, behavioral risk is a big part of it. Say, mm-hmm. look, you know, the, the, the biggest risk to your success as an investor is not uh, whether you invest in stocks versus bonds. It's, you know, a lot of the choices that you make. I try and talk about some fundamental ways to think about risk. I, I screen stocks for you know, potential fraud and mismanagement and bankruptcy risk and things mm-hmm. like that. <clears throat> Talk about that in there as well. But trying to dispel this academic notion that, you know, say stocks are riskier than bonds uh, because they're more volatile. Uh, when in fact, I mean, if you look at rolling periods, rolling 10 and 15 year periods, stocks have basically uh, beaten bonds uh, again and again and again. If you're a patient, long term investor, uh, risk takes on a different character. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. Those are the 10 commandments and we're going to recap those for sure in the show notes. Daniel, I got a few questions for you as kind of just a Q&A follow up on the book. Yeah. Okay. Well, first is I'm curious if you consider yourself an academic or a private sector guy or some type of, of hybrid. Uh, no, I definitely don't consider myself an academic. <laughs> I uh, just, uh, geez, man, I, uh, I went to enough school to to do what I wanted to do, mm-hmm. and they don't let uh, they don't let young guys from Alabama on a stage unless you have a PhD. So I did, uh, <laughs> I, did I did what I needed to do to to tell the story, but I don't consider myself an academic in any meaningful sense. Cool, very cool. And how about what do you personally invest in? You don't have to tell us all the nitty gritty details, but I'd love to know you know kind of the, the high level asset classes that you you put your money in. Yeah, so I'm I'm diversified across asset classes. So I I invest in REITs, uh, foreign stocks, domestic stocks, fixed income. I have rental properties. Just I'm all over the place because mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't know any better. Mm-hmm. I don't know what's going to happen. So whatever does well, I want to be there. So that is going into your ninth commandment. Diversification means always having to say sorry. Yep, I love it, and. Do you try to rebalance those things regularly or are you just, you know, as as needed, but maybe not on a scientific annual year ending level? Um, I rebalance. I rebalance because I'm contributing every month. So mm-hmm. I rebalance uh, basically by allocating uh, to what's done poorly, uh, you know, the next month. And then I do, you know, I rebalance once a year as well. Mm-hmm. I have my my dad as a financial advisor. OK, so, right. <laughs> So I get to I get to work with my with my pops, and so it's always easy to to have that meeting and and rebalance. That's cool. So that's a really interesting perspective that you kind of grew up in a family where you've been around this stuff. You've seen maybe the industry, you've seen you know the internet come on and and change things in, in at least one category. And I know you you're a big believer that the biggest value that advisors offer are behavioral controls. And I wonder how you see 
the industry kind of changing for the future. Now we have all these these robo advisories coming out, and a lot of people are questioning, you know, where's the place for for financial advisors um, and the transparency of the industry. How do you see it potentially tr- changing over the next decade? Well, I think robo advisors have done a couple of really positive things. Um, you know, first they've compressed fees, mm-hmm. which is great. I mean, that's that's great for investors. I mean, fees are getting compressed. Uh, both on the advisory side and on the product side, uh, that's only good news for investors. So mm-hmm. hats hats off to robo advisors there. Uh, robo advisors have taken what is a stale and lame industry and have injected some sort of technological savvy into it. So yeah. I think I think uh, you know brick and mortar advisors are having to compete with robos, and they say, look, my clients for you know relatively little can go get this you know, integrated tech solution, I got to up my game. So, uh, you know, hats off to them for that as well. I think, um, I, you know, I think the best uh, robo advisors, I think, you know, folks like Betterment have done a fantastic job. They have uh, my buddy Dan Egan working there. He's the head of behavioral finance there. Um, and they, they understand the power of behavior. And so they're trying to prompt and shape behavior uh, by the way that they, they, ping you with updates, the way that they let you know the kind of tax consequences that you're going to generate. Um, and, and I really see the future being, uh, you know, I think a lot of smaller clients will be well served by robo advisors. There's always going to be people, especially I think people with a lot of money who are going to work, uh, want to work with an individual. Mm-hmm. But I see, you know, what I've heard called centaur advisors, where sort of the robos inform the actual, uh, the actual person running the account. Um, I think that sort of hybrid model is coming, and I, I think it's great. I think there's room for everybody. That's cool, and that's awesome about your buddy that works for Betterment. Because that was going to be my next question, and we had John Stein, the the CEO of Betterment, on the the podcast uh, two months ago or so, and that was one of the big questions. It was post Brexit. And we're like, you know, how do how do these robo advisories curve those behavior aspects? And it was really one of the we were just starting to even think about these types of things. And I think Betterment did something that was that was pretty interesting. Is they when there was the Brexit, they actually paused trading for a bit, and there was there was a lot of kind of uproar about it. It ended up working out tremendously well for the customers because they stayed in through the dip, and and it worked out. But there was people on the other side saying, well. You know, what if it kept dropping and people wanted to get their money out or, or, or pause their accounts and they couldn't? So I think there's a lot of there's a lot of unknowns, but there's a lot that they can do. And I, I agree with you. Like there, there's a challenge there for them to meet in curbing you know, the behavioral components because it's not I guess they do actually have advisors. Like if if you were scared, you could call them up and trade. But it's different than having a financial advisor where they kind of control your money in a sense. And if you want to get that money out, you need to call them, have a conversation with them. So there's like, there's that hurdle that you, you kind of have to get past if you want to get your money out. Whereas in Betterment, you can, you know, you can pretty much get in there and get your money out at the wrong time or the right time potentially. Yeah. But, you know, Betterment's been able to do cool stuff, you know, just by virtue of being a technology play. They've, I, I heard Dan talking about something recently where they said, look, we, uh, you know, the, the conventional logic has been financial advisors. If, if things are going, uh, going crazy in the market, you want to call your clients before they call you, right? Like mm-hmm. you want to sort of preempt any bad behavior. Betterment did sort of a randomized control trial where they where they called some people and then didn't call others. 
Um, and they actually found that people got more scared when you called them, <laughs> you know, when, when you sort of reached out to them, because frankly, a lot of people just weren't thinking about it. And they, you know, you sort of caused a problem that wasn't there. And so now what Betterment does is they, uh, if the market's going crazy and you log in, they'll send you a little message that says, hey, don't freak out. If you want to talk to someone, you know, call this number. But, I, you know, I'm appreciative of technology plays uh, having sort of easy way to run these scientific control trials and, and teach people like me g- good practices that can be applied outside of uh, technology like that. So I think they're doing great stuff. That's cool. And it's great to hear that they actually have people on their team dedicated to that side of the business, because from, from you know, from our, from a user standpoint and investor standpoint, you, it almost looks like it's just a platform. There's no people behind it. Right. But it's great to know yeah. that they have a smart team and people that are actively working on these, these important parts. And it's, yeah. I, I have no idea how advisors are going to be able to compete with robo advisors on cost because robo advisors have maybe one office somewhere in the world and you know advisors at least for big banks they have massive corner offices all over the world so they they have you know the the cost to operate a robo advisor have got to be minuscule compared to you know to to kind of brick and mortar advisors yeah i just think you know i remember i i have a vivid memory of of e trade and other sort of online trading platforms coming uh, coming into mass consciousness and people saying to my dad you know like you, you better look for a job sort of thing, mm-hmm. you know, like yeah, you're going to go the way of the dinosaur. And, and I, I just think that there's room for everyone. I mean, people by and large, I think are still sort of low tech. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just the way that people thought sort of real life meetings were going to go away when video conferencing came around or whatever, <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, it just didn't happen. So I think that robo advisors are going to do extremely well. I've seen, uh, estimates that they're going to be managing trillions of dollars in like the next three years. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, just, I think there's huge upside, but there's going to be a subset of people. And I, I don't think it's a small subset who are always going to want to drive down to a physical office and shake hands with a person and have lunch with them. And that's cool. And I think there's room for everybody. Yeah, I agree. Totally. I think it's old school, new school. It's, it's like my, my uh, I have money in, in, betterment and Wealthfront, just because I'm, I'm trying both out but my dad refuses to put money into it because he just doesn't trust it he doesn't trust technology he thinks it's just gonna he's gonna wake up one day it's gonna be gone and he's gonna have nobody to call so right. uh, that's maybe that's the baby boomers so dan i just want to wrap up with two um two last questions slash stories there was i saw in the video there was a really cool concept i think we've already hit it but i just like the way that it sounds so i just wanted to bring it up it was that the best investors are the lazy ones i was wondering if you could just expand on that concept a bit. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I talk in the book. There's this whole section on what I call Wall Street Bizarro World, which is you know, if you think back to comic books, it's like Bizarro Superman's evil Superman, um, and it's it just talks about the ways in which convention is turned on its head uh, in investing, where uh, you know people who watch more financial news get lower returns. Mm-hmm. You know, wh- where else in life can you? can you invest yourself more in a process and get stupider, you know, but, but investing, um, people who trade, you know, people who trade more, it goes, uh, it goes monotonically, which means it goes, you know, down, down directly by the, the number of trades you, you execute a year, you do that much worse on average. So you are an um, academic monotonically. I know, I know, I know. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just this crazy thing. You have to condition yourself to say, 
you know, less is more, mm -hmm. uh, less, uh, you know, less Jim Cramer is more returns, uh, you know, less trading is better returns. Uh, it's, it's a crazy concept and that's why it's such a hard, hard game. Yeah. Wild. And then the last bit is again, in your video, if you could just give us the two minute story, you had mentioned something that I thought was incredibly interesting and telling about soccer teams and the goalies about how they, how they read uh, during what is was it at the end when they do the kickouts or yeah oh yeah yeah like, the shootouts uh, shootouts right shoot, yeah, yeah like penalty kicks and mm -hmm. all that sort of thing so yeah they they looked at Euroleague goalies and they you know they're that's big business over there and they're trying to figure out how to make goalies better at stopping these shots on goal and so they they looked and they found uh, that ninety four percent of the time goalies dive dramatically to the left or right. Like, which makes sense because there's a billion people watching, you know, in, in South American countries, they shoot you if you let the winning goal go by. <laughs> right. And so like, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot on the line. So they, uh, you know, 94% of the time they dive dramatically to the left or the right, but they found that shots on goal were almost evenly divided between left, right, and center. Uh, so that actually goalies who didn't move at all, you know, goalies who uh, just stood in the center. Uh, were the ones that stopped the most shots. So again, it kind of goes back to this doing nothing is the best thing to do. Uh, but, you know, the results are telling because they tell the goalies this and it did nothing to shape behavior mm -hmm. <laughs> because we have such an action bias. You know, when the game is on the line, so to speak, uh, we, we don't want to have regrets. We want to leave it all on the field and uh, we want to we want to do all that we can. But mm -hmm. investors would be well served to understand that all you can do is often nothing at all. Wow. Awesome. That's such a good story. I can just picture it in my mind. Uh, a, a goalie in Colombia standing in the center of the net and not <laughs> right. diving and uh, the game winning goal, goal goes to the left or right. Uh, it's it, capped. It's yeah, capped when he gets home. Hopefully Pablo Escobar is not still alive. <laughs> Yeah, and this has been a lot of fun. Uh, just love the message, love the book, and I'll encourage all the all the readers and listeners out there to take a look at the material. We'll leave the links in the show notes, and John and I'll do an awesome recap of this episode after. Uh, thanks again, man. That's been been a lot of fun. My pleasure. Thank you. Man, that was another great episode. I think I learned a ton about what not to do uh, and how <laughs> not to panic if things go sour, which. You know, he called me on it. It's, it's my time's coming. Oh, I love that. That was that was funny. Well, we'll we'll, um, we'll make sure we give him credit if and when your Vanguard account doesn't do well. But so much of that made sense. So many of those Ten yeah. Commandments made sense. And I think it's one thing to read and understand them, and it's a totally another thing to practice them. And I, I know you and I personally, even since starting this podcast, the sheer amount of new investments that we've made out of trying, you know, just wanting to experience new investments and learn, but also because we wanted to do some something or had a little bit of an emotional pull towards them. Uh, I know like during the Indiegogo episode, you went on and invested in that, in that one company and that wasn't a large amount to you. That was just kind of for fun. But, you know, it's, it's easy to get drawn into these things. And so much of what he said made sense. Uh, it's, it's more just how can we make sure that we practice and, and follow that guidance? Yeah, I, I think that's definitely right. And if anything, I want to mark this episode to come back to when, you know, if and when the stock market goes back down uh -huh. and force myself to re-listen to this and say, okay, Johnny, do not panic. Just hold. Do not sell anything. Wait till it comes back up. And I, yeah, and I, I agree. And I, 
I wish we could figure out a way to mechanize it, kind of like you said, like automate and mechanize these types of things to take the behavioral components out of it. And I, I, li- I like what Betterment and Wealthfront are doing to a large degree on like the tax loss harvesting side. It's not an emotional trigger that they pull or any type of specific timing. It's just totally mechanized, right? So we'll see if we can get that whatever type of of I don't know what it what it's called, some type of system that Dr. Daniel Crosby's built. We'll see if we can get some of that or a sneak peek of that and share it with the audience because that's something I'd be very interested in because I I'm an emotional guy. I wear it on my sleeve and I make a lot of emotional investing decisions, whether too excited about something, which is one of his commandments, and also, you know, getting out at the wrong times, which is another one of his commandments. So, um, so we'll, we'll, tr- we'll try to continue to find ways to, to automate and mechanize this stuff going forward. I think if either Betterment or Wealthfront devises a way where you can set rules for yourself, where it does not allow you to sell if xyz <laughs> that would be amazing where it, like you you know you basically when everything's going up everything's fine you know you check these boxes you say do not allow me to sell uh if i'm gonna lose money or if i if you know xyz yeah. reasons and it just locks you out and there's nothing you could do you know <laughs> maybe yeah. they can have you electric electronic sign it maybe they can even do a little webcam video where you have to say the words so you can mm-hmm. they play it back to you and be like nope this is what you said and it just forces like you it. never to lose money almost like a living will or a trust or something and you know i was thinking about that with my vanguard account i wish and, and my wealthfront account as well i wish i could just lock it throw away the keys and not have access to it for two years. And if I could do that, I would do it. I've actually thought about just telling my parents to change my password without me, you know, giving them access to change it and having them change it because I don't need to be in there. That's money that is there strictly for the purpose of growing. I don't need access to it, but I mean, I'm guilty. I I check both accounts three, four times a month at least. How about you? I check it every time we have to do an episode. You ask me to pull it up, so I'm pretty good <laughs> about not looking at any of my dashboards or any of my stats. Yeah. All right. Well, listen. I have a secret. I gotta confess. Okay. And I'm not sure if you knew this about me, and I don't think we've ever mentioned it on the episode. But if we have, it was very lightly. So I used I use a financial advisor, and I don't uh-huh. think I've ever mentioned that, but. We'll just say it's with a very big bank. And in 2013, after I sold my business, I gave them several million dollars to manage. And I was part of the reason that we were so driven to start this podcast uh, because it was doing pretty good for about two years. I would say, you know, average, a little bit under the market, but not 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 any big swings, not any big losses. And then in 2016, at the beginning, it started to take a nosedive and I was watching it. And, you know, every week I'm losing hundred thousand dollars, two hundred thousand dollars. It was crazy. Right. Wow. It was really scary. And and this was before we started the podcast. I, I didn't really understand what funds I was in or how it was all working, etc. Uh, and I also had a, another uh, advisor with another big bank before that that I fired because I, I figured out that they were just telling me incorrect information, trying to manipulate numbers, etc. So the other account that I still maintained, I kind of liked. So I kept it and started taking a nosedive, nosedive, nosedive. And... I finally got in touch with them and I figured out what happened was they were heavy in energy Mm. and energy took a big dive last year. But what was the worst thing that they, that happened? 
they ended up selling all of my energy funds at the very bottom. The one oh, thing no. that an advisor is not supposed to do and is supposed to guard you from doing is making emotional decisions like this and or getting out of things when they go down, right? Because advisors are supposed to take long-term views. They sold all of my energy stuff at the very bottom, 100% their discretion. And so over the course of three years, so I had the, my account since late 2013, several million dollars. In that time period, the major indexes like the Dow Jones, S&P, they were all up over 25%. My account was was down about 1% during that same time period. But the worst part was over the course of those three years, I had to pay a lot of tax on that account because of the earned income aspect, right? So while the, the balance was staying the same, it meant that I was taking a lot of losses on the capital side and I was I was just meeting that with the earned income component. So I'm paying, you know, tens of thousands of dollars on up, even $100,000 a year in taxes, but my account balance was staying the same, plus I was paying my advisor, right? That's insane. And I hate to break this to you, but you're also losing out on possible gains you would have had yes. if you had yes. just invested in, in an index fund or something else. Absolutely. That's the third component. So it's not that I, I just didn't lose money. I mean, I, I, I probably lost, you know, I, I would say in total, I lost close to a million dollars. Um, it's really sad. I'm sorry, like, buddy. And not, yeah, I mean, it sucks, but it's, but it's okay now because it's in my control now. Right. And I, ha- I still have smart people around like you and everybody else in part of this podcast that are, they're helping to make better decisions. But I just wanted to, to mention, I'd never mentioned that before because the person managing my money is, I know him pretty well and I consider him a good guy and I did, I didn't want to bring this up on the podcast, but that's what this podcast is all about is sharing information. Yeah. Right. And I just, I don't want people to make the same mistake that I made, um, and, or get hurt. I mean, that, luckily I can weather storms like that. And I didn't technically lose that much money, but imagine it's somebody's retirement and they're looking forward to retirement and it's, it's totally out of their control. Right. And they don't understand it. So I just want people to get educated. And I think what's great about this episode with Dr. Daniel Crosby is, you know, this information, even if you want to use an advisors that are, there are great advisors out there. It's, it's the game might be changing a bit, but there are good advisors out there and certain people out there definitely need good advisors. It's just a matter of empowering yourself with information and knowledge to be able to work more effectively with those advisors and to be able to vet them like like uh, like Daniel said. Make sure you, you vet and find a good advisor that has your best interest at heart. That makes sense. So I'm curious, how did your advisor have the, the power to sell? Is that something that they're, they're not really allowed to do? No, it's, yeah, that's a great question. Do you Usually when you set up these accounts – it's not a discretionary account. It means if they want to, you know, you go in, you set something up, they implement it. And if they want to make changes, they need to call you, have you sign a bunch of papers, etc. You know, I was just coming into money. I was super excited. I thought these guys were the best things in sliced bread. I didn't want to have any discretion. You know, that's not why I use them. I want them to, to make the decisions. So I'd signed everything over as a discretionary account, which means they don't, they can do anything they want. And that's pretty much what they did. They made changes. And, you know, I, I don't even know if I would have been smart enough to say don't sell at the bottom. Right. It's only in hindsight because, it's, you know, things are tanking. You might think, 
you know, energy is going to the bottom. Who knows? Um, I don't think I was smart enough to make that decision well, at the time. But here, here's one secret that I don't think I've shared with anyone on this podcast or with you is on my blog, johnnyfd.com. I had I posted about me buying Facebook stocks like years ago, like you know, 2004, mm-hmm. 14 or something, and I had wrote, wrote on there my plan to set a sell limit at you know. 25% loss or something and that way mm-hmm. there's no way I can lose more than 25%. And that was my mindset of you know playing on the the defensive is okay well as long as I don't lose all of it I'm, I'm fine I only lost a quarter of it. And thankfully a bunch of people who read my blog so thank you guys out there uh, just commented saying no don't do that you know it's a terrible idea. Uh, yeah. Yeah. you know never sell when it's low just hold on to it. If anything buy more. And because I listened to a, you know, like they, it made sense. So what I did was I reached out to my, my network, uh, and I think I post we posted on my Facebook, my personal Facebook account. And one of my buddies, uh, he's a dentist in Hong Kong named Ed. Big thank you and shout out to Ed. He was he was like Johnny, hop on Skype with me. I need to explain this to you. And he was the first one to explain to me the buy and hold, as well yeah. as not panicking. And because makes of sense. the vice of all these people. I, I switched from that mentality of selling when it's low to holding when it's low, and if anything, buying more. So I think yeah. We, well, I wish you know, he had. I wish he had talked to my advisors. <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's crazy. It's it's so crazy that now that we've been doing this for a while and we're talking to really smart people, this everyone just knows this as common sense. But it's yeah. insane how few people in the world you know, are taught this. Cause I mean, neither you or I were, you know, we were both, both educated, both went to college. Nobody ever taught us this stuff. And I think no, this, is, no. this is something so basic that everybody in the world should know. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just like we said, easy to read, easy to understand, very hard to implement. I think the hardest thing in the world to do is look positively at the market when it's down, you know, when it's down 20% or more and you can take a bullish approach on it. It's very difficult, but that's where a lot of money is made. And more importantly, where a lot of money is saved by not selling when it does that. So everyone pay close attention to this stuff. Arm yourself with as much information if you're investing by yourself or with an advisor is equally important. Don't make the same mistakes I made. And I think everyone should also study a little bit of psychology. And it doesn't necessarily mean going going to courses in school or, or whatever, but you can read lots of books. You can read Daniel's book. You can read a book called Influence. I think you've read that, Johnny. Yeah, I've definitely taken a look at it. And we'll have a link to Daniel's book as well. Uh, and, yeah. and, and I think these, these, these are vital, especially when you are in the right mindset currently where everything's fine, you can mm-hmm. be very lot, like level-headed about it. And if you can implant these thoughts now, hopefully when there is the next downturn, you can remind yourself, hey, you know, don't panic, everything's fine. You know, we've, we've practiced this before. Yeah, absolutely. So big thanks to Daniel for coming on the show. We really, really enjoyed the Ten Commandments and we'll share a link of his book in the show notes. And Johnny, got anything else? We have a, a very exciting... January and February coming up with awesome guests. So guys, looking forward to uh, to another eight weeks coming up of the Invest Like a Ball show. Yeah, wait, wait. I, I'm curious. You, you kind of left it on a, as a cliffhanger. Did you mm-hmm. end up moving your money out of that that account with that financial advisor? Or what did you do with it? Okay, so I downsized it immediately for into one third going back uh, five months ago. I took two thirds of it out right away. 
Um, and I, and looking back, it was an okay decision because nothing was coming back at that point because they had sold energy at the bottom and that was where the almost all of my losses were. Uh, and then when I got back home here, uh, a month ago, I removed the other one third and I left just, I left not much in, I left like a hundred thousand, which is a lot of money, but it wasn't a lot of money compared to the size of my account. And I did that for a pretty specific reason because I can, if I need to, I can borrow money against that money as a, what they call it? Secured, secured debt or something like that. Uh, securities, securities back debt. I can borrow money against that at like next to nothing, like two and a half percent or something. And it gives me, I don't know. I don't know. I'll probably honest, just remove it. It's kind of pointless to be honest. But um, yeah, if anything, if you do keep it, I would renegotiate the terms where it becomes a discussionary you know, account where, where yeah. they can't just go in and sell. But to be honest, it seems like, you know, it was a hard lesson learned. I, I respect you for not wanting to, to call them out, you know, or call mm-hmm. the company. I would definitely yeah. do it. I would definitely put it on blast if it was if it was Bank of America <laughs> and it was you know whatever John Perkins. Uh, I'd be like f this guy. You know this guy should get. Yeah, I like to toe into these things. I'll, I'll probably open up the can of worms later on. Uh, but to your point, I did actually put it to a discretionary account and taking all the knowledge of this podcast into play. I basically chose five funds that we've already kind of got run over on previous episodes, just like putting it into five slices, the S&P 500, small cap, Russell uh, 2000, foreign equities, et cetera. So I took all the knowledge that we've learned on this and I basically created an account in there that I would that mimics my Vanguard account. Okay. That, that, that sounds better than um, even though I'm sure the guys at the Boss Lounge are going to yell at you and say – Get your money out <laughs> of there. Why are you paying that one? Why are you paying that one point five percent? Why are you paying that one point five percent? Okay, so here's the thing. When I learned this lesson from my buddy a long time ago in the 2008 crash, he had about eight million dollars in cash in one bank. Lehman Brothers goes bankrupt. A couple other ones go bankrupt. All of a sudden, it looks like the world is going to totally fall apart, and any money in the bank is screwed, right? Except for your two hundred and fifty thousand dollars that's insured by the the government. But if the if all the banks in the USA are failing, the U.S. government's insolvent. It doesn't even matter anymore, right? Like the money that you're going to get back is going to be totally worthless if you even get it back. Uh, so. What he did was he hired a basically a team to take his eight million dollars and divide it into two hundred thousand dollar tracks and put it into however many different banks. Eight times four uh, five is what forty. So he had to open up forty different bank accounts so that the instead of having eight million dollars in one bank account, he had two hundred thousand dollars in forty bank accounts, and that way at least all that money was insured, right? Because if you had $8 million yeah. in a bank account, that bank goes bust, you might get $200,000 back or whatever the insurance amount is and nothing else. Okay. And that's what happened to another one of my friends in Bank of Cyprus. So for me, it's important to, to always maintain bank, like kind of go-to bank accounts, right? And the bigger the bank, you know, theoretically the better, but maybe that doesn't even matter. So I have a lot of bank accounts that have a little bit of money in them just so that, if problems happen domestically or internationally, I can move money around, hopefully. And you don't even know if you can move money around. They lock the banks up and compose capital controls. But I like to have access to a lot of banks. So if one bank suddenly looks shaky, I can move 
liquid cash to other banks and spread it out like, you know, in a couple clicks of a button. Uh, just it's kind of like hedging a little bit. Right. And at least with this bank, I can invest. Whereas if I have money with, you know, Bank of America, it doesn't it just sits there. Right. Well, which which bank is this? Sam? That's UBS. OK. So can you not move that that money to a child shop account or you know something else where you can invest but with, without paying the, that one one point five percent? Uh, yeah, I'm sure there are options. You know, it's just I, I did this right at the, you know, right at the turn of the year. And I had so many other things going on. I still do that. It's, it wasn't the top priority. But OK, as as true to this podcast, I will make sure I get that money out and into not paying any type of fees because I would not be true to myself or the podcast if I didn't do it. Please do. That's kind of why I didn't announce it in the begin with because I knew everyone would kill me if I had, you know, millions of dollars with a financial advisor paying him a fee when we're talking about all this other stuff. But I was really doing it just to benchmark. At the end, I was doing it to benchmark the performance against my Vanguard account, against Wealthfront, against Betterment. I wanted to be able to take all of these and like put them in a year-ending report and show the performance. But it just got too ugly at the end with this with UBS. So I'm just like, screw it. I can't even, I can't stomach this anymore. Okay. Uh, so I just binned it. You know what? No shame in lessons learned and moving forward. Uh, but we putting this out right now that if you do not move it by I'll, oh, I'll give you three months that's plenty of time you have 90 days what if we don't move it what if we just go blow it because i already lost so much in that account anyways <laughs> why don't we just spend the rest on like something fun i have a few ideas <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's terrible financial advice um but you got to do something with it and if by okay let's let's say by summer Okay, it's January now. If by mm. June you're still paying 1.5%, then it, like it, there has to be some kind of punishment that cuz that that's going to be <laughs> that would be $750 in just in just fees uh, from now to June. So, yeah. okay, I'll let, I'll let I'll let you give me 15 more tie kicks in each thigh. You know what? Let me have one in each and I guarantee you 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 want to move that money. <laughs> <laughs> all right good stuff all right well thank you for sharing that with us because i'm sure people yeah. will learn a, a ton from that because i mean this is the whole point of this podcast and i think this is why people like invest like a boss so much is because we're not perfect we are you know basically sharing the lessons that we've personally learned that have cost us a ton of money uh now you know hearing this i, I realize how much you know it's cost you and for people to be able to hear this and you know not just have it be you know some white paper somewhere but someone that they've actually gotten to know and they can see hey if a smart guy like sam can can mess up or be kind of you know swayed into doing something stupid Mm -hmm. anybody can so you know even though i'm sorry that happened i know it sucks but for the audience it's i'm sure this is invaluable Hopefully, hopefully. So if you guys have any questions about that, feel free to leave it in the boss lounge. And another, you know, it's another good resource. Like Johnny said, he was saved from making mistakes because he reached out to network and the boss lounge is exactly that. It's a network. If you have ideas, questions, it's basically crowdsourced, right? Everyone's in there just just applying their own knowledge and and uh, and help. So um, we love it. And I'm sure, you know, that in the future will save us from our own mistakes. Definitely. And if you guys want access to the Boss Lounge, just go to investlikeaboss.com, click on bonus, or you can sign up for the email list and you'll get access. Uh, while you are on your computer, do us a huge favor and leave us a review 
on iTunes because that is the best way we can reach more people with this podcast. Uh, if you don't use iTunes, just do us a favor. Just tell, tell a couple friends, you know, share it on your Facebook or just even tell your buddy, you know, uh, next time you're at lunch with them. Uh, but for now, uh, I want to say thank you to this week's reviewer, uh, Olga. Uh, what was it? Og C17 from Canada. Uh, they say actionable five stars. This podcast offers great value to both educated investors and laymen alike. I am a CPA. Johnny and Sam inspire trust, and the information they share is actionable. I've listened to every episode. My only gripe is that I didn't think of this podcast idea first. Thanks a lot, Og, and brave that Canadian winner, buddy. All right. See you guys all next week. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Best Like a Boss podcast. Join our mailing list at investlikeaboss.com to get exclusive access to our insider investment portfolios and our private members forum. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends and leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps more than you know. See you guys next week.